0: Ladies and gentlemen, damas y caballeros, welcome to El Cyber Gigante podcast. Today is October 25th, 2020, and it's Sunday, everyone. I hope everyone's having a great weekend so far and you're able to get all your chores done or you're out and about because it's perfect weather outside, mid-70s with a nice breeze. So hope everyone's enjoying their weekend so far. Today's podcast will be part one of a three-series story. That's going to start today and end on next Sunday's podcast. I'll be covering one of the most controversial hacks that has ever occurred and the very first digital weapon that was ever created by a nation state and used. All right. So strap on to your seats, your bed, your car, wherever the hell you're sitting on right now, because it's about to get cray. It's June 2010. Iran's nuclear scientists are all sitting at their computers when all of a sudden their computers begin to crash. They look at each other, a bit puzzled, somewhat concerned. They think perhaps it's a power outage, but that doesn't seem right because the lights still seem to be working. So they try turning on the computers again. The computer will start rebooting. Five seconds later, it would crash again. So they call in tech support tech support starts looking into the issue and they think, Hmm, perhaps it's a bad system update or a bad system configuration that has been placed recently. Let's go ahead and wipe the computers and start it from a clean state. And that's exactly what they did. They wiped them clean and they put a brand new version of windows. They will start booting the computers with this brand new operating system. Just for 10 seconds later, it would crash again. Huh? A bit strange. No matter what they did, the computers would go into this infinite loop of rebooting and crashing, rebooting and crashing over and over and over again. They started to think, huh, perhaps we've been hacked. Perhaps it's a virus. But how can that be? I mean, we have an antivirus installed on all of these systems. So how is it that a virus got through? So what do you think they did? The same thing we all do when we have Wi-Fi issues. We call Xfinity. We're on the phone for like an hour and a half, maybe more. And we hope to God we get a $5 credit added to our account for all of our grievances. So they call their security antivirus support team. And they file a complaint. How is it that we pay you to protect us from viruses, but yet, here we are. The antivirus vendor that the Iranians had were based out of Belarusia. And for those of you who don't know the difference between Belarusia and Russia, there's a Bella in front of the Russia. So the Belarus support team began looking into the issue, right? And they got permissions to remotely connect into one of the infected machines, and they were able to find six suspicious files on the machine. But being able to decipher these files wasn't going to be easy. I mean, typically their team spent most of their time on day-to-day tech support calls, which is essentially like, have you restarted your computer yet? Or when you click on this, go to here, right? Some of these very trivial and nominal tech support calls. They weren't ready to decipher malware. And they quickly realized, yo, this is some serious code. This is more advanced than anything they had ever seen before. It took Days for them to evaluate over the code, and they were barely just scratching the surface. That's when they realized that this was no regular exploit. This was a kernel level rootkit. And just FYI, a rootkit is a collection of code that has malicious intent, right? And most hackers will develop a rootkit at the upper layers of a computer, usually at the user or application layer, something that you and I interface with not really at the kernel level, right? In the kernel level, you're essentially integrated into the brain of the computer, the inside of the computer that makes everything function seamlessly. And these are extremely uncommon. I mean, you have to be a real skilled hacker to be able to create these. And that's exactly what they were up against. Digging deeper into the rootkit, they realized that there was four files that were designed to spread itself through an infected usb drive now when you inject a usb drive to a computer the computer will scan the usb drive to figure out what kind of files are inside so it can accurately represent the file type icon so if this is a word document it will show a word icon if it's a music file it will show a music icon or if it's a video file it will show the video icon so as soon as the computer is began scanning the USB drives, it would actually trigger the virus to kick off and begin infecting the computer. This was the genius of it. It was completely hidden and embedded into a normal function of an operating system. And on top of that, no one had ever seen this type of attack. And that's when they realized, dude, this is a zero day exploit. And just so that you guys know how crazy this was, There's about 12 million viruses that are captured every year. How many zero-day exploits do you think are seen every year? Think about it. At most, at most, 10 to 12. 10 to 12 zero-day exploits a year. So they couldn't believe it. It was like hitting the lottery for them. They were just some small cybersecurity company based out of Belarus that no one had even heard of, but they had just discovered one of the rarest trophies a virus hunter could ever come across. What was crazy about it was this zero-day exploit didn't just work for one version of Windows. It had been created to function for every single version of Windows that had been released since the year 2000, Windows 2000, Windows XP, Windows 2003, Vista, Server 2009, 7, and Server 2008 R2. But then their team became a bit confused. How was it that this rootkit was able to install code seamlessly without any warning? I mean, Windows has a security feature that verifies every single package has to be digitally signed with valid certificates. And then they realize, shoot, this malware? It's been legitimately signed by a real company. By the way, digital certificates are trusted security documents. They're somewhat like a, a digital passport for code. And software companies will sign their code with digital certificates to validate and say, hey, this is our legitimate code from our company, so we're going to sign it to verify it and show you that this is true and valid, right? And computers, when they see any type of code that's been signed by a digital certificate, they will consider it, yeah, this is trustworthy. I don't have to worry about it. It's been legitimately signed, right? And In this case, the certificates that the malware had used were signed by a trusted, legit hardware company based out of Taiwan, So they're wondering, how the heck did these hackers steal these certificates and keys? It it didn't make sense. This was crazy to pull off. I mean, companies stored their certificates and keys in an offline facility that required multiple access points in order to get through. I mean, you had to do several biometrical authentications from one stage to another to get to the final spot where your keys and certificates live. I mean, they got to scan your face. They have to scan your hand, your eyes. There's different security guards. There's different passwords you need to know. There's several layers of security, like physical security in place so that only the right people are able to reach that certificate and key. And this was crazy. How is it that someone had the resources or the ability to break into a facility like that? So they reached out to Microsoft and the real tech company to notify them of what they had discovered. Two weeks went by. And both Microsoft and Realtek didn't respond. So they decided, nah, man, people need to know about this virus. It's spreading throughout the world. So they went public and made a statement. And the news spread like wildfire. Finally, Microsoft began to take notice. And they began working on a patch to resolve the issue. And they sent out notifications to everyone saying, hey, the virus exists and a patch is going to be made available in two weeks. At the same time, several antivirus companies began looking at the code as well. And they noticed that the code had been launched a year before anyone had even noticed it, back in June 2009. And they noticed that this attack was performed in three different waves. The first one was in June 2009, the second in March 2010, and the third in April 2010. And every single time... They did a new release or a new wave. The code changed just a tad bit. But one thing still remained somewhat unknown. What was the intentions of this virus? I mean, no one was able to find any code that indicated that they were trying to steal some bank account password or any kind of obvious financial motive within the code. Until finally, someone began to notice that the malware kept referencing some German company called Simon's. And the virus would always search every single computer for these two programs from Simon's, Simon's Subentech Step 7 and Subentech WinCC program. And both programs were part of an industrial control system, typically found inside of factories around the world, and they were used to control robots or belts on the assembly line. No one had ever seen a virus that targeted an industrial control system before. There was no obvious financial gain from doing that, which meant perhaps it was created to steal factory designs or product blueprints. So the viruses only targeted computers with the Simons programs, which meant if a computer didn't have these two programs installed, it was considered safe. And the computers in Iran that were in these constant reboot, they didn't seem to have the program. So it seems like they really didn't have much harm caused to it. So within a week, After it was made public to the community, the virus became old news. Microsoft was still working on a patch, but all the security teams had updated their antivirus to detect for the malware and slowly everyone began to forget about it. July 16th, a cybersecurity researcher at Cibentec, one of the largest cybersecurity companies in the world, began reviewing the malware's code. First thing he noticed was the overall size of the code Typically, he would see a virus would be between 10 to 15 kilobytes, but this one was very different. It was 50 times larger than he would typically see. It was 500 kilobytes. And the code had several layers of encryption and compression, which took his team several days and weeks to decrypt and uncompress until they finally found the mother load. Three dozen files and components also all wrapped up in layers and encryption. He found menus for 400 different settings that the attackers could leverage and use through their remote command and control servers. And then he saw the true genius of the virus. The virus could actually hide itself from any antivirus system. Every single time an antivirus would run a scan or search for a virus in a certain location, the virus would be able to mask its own existence and trick the scanner into believing the file was actually empty. It would essentially be telling it, nothing to see here, dude, move along. Crazy, right? And the researchers had only gone through five kilobits of code, and there was still a whole megabyte left of malware to look over. And then they noticed that every single time a computer was infected, it was required to call home and provide a report. Its home was two servers, one in Denmark and another in Malaysia, which were considered the command and control servers. The virus would report the infected computer's IP address, domain name, the version of Windows, and if the computer had the Simon software or not. And that's when the researchers decided to get in contact with the DNS service provider for both of the command and control servers, and begin rerouting all of the traffic to their own internal computer dedicated to receiving malware. And that's when his computer began receiving a flood of reports from all the infected computers all around the world. And he started looking at it closely. He began mapping where the majority of the infected servers were, and he started to notice a weird pattern. More than 60% of all the infected servers around the world were in Iran, with another 25% split between Indonesia and India. So it became clear who was the target of the virus. They began Googling what Iran and India had in common, and that's when they noticed a natural gas pipeline deal that was being built between the two countries. It was a plan that the United States of America strongly opposed. But then they also noticed something else. Iran's expanding nuclear program. The UN had just applied sanctions to Iran, and there were even more talks about an airstrike on their nuclear facility. And that's when it all became clear. The highly sophisticated code, stolen certificates and keys, and Iran being the target of the virus. This was a government spy mission, and more than likely, the US government. And Then he realized, holy crap. I just rerouted all of their traffic to my computer, and I might have just sabotaged an international covert mission. All right, guys, that's all for tonight. Thanks a lot for listening in. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please tune in on Wednesday for the second part of this three-part series. Happy Sunday, everyone.